Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 554. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out the other shows on this network, where there are so many interesting shows, I really promise, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Richard Ernest. Richard is the founder of Ernest Enterprises and author of the book, Leading with Ethics and Humanity. Do you have the guts? Came out in August 2022. Richard graduated from the US Naval Academy in 1964 to become an officer and a highly decorated pilot during the Vietnam War. Then having had over 30 years of experience as a top executive in high-tech industries, he's now a mentor and coach of young entrepreneurs and leaders who face tough challenges and opportunities. In this conversation with Richard, we explore his career, the impact of having been in war, serving as an officer. We examine the qualities of resilience and agility in leadership, the ways that leaders can bring ethics and humanity into their daily practice to build an effective culture and business. And we look at the difference of leadership in the military, politics and business. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Richard Ernest, how fantastic to get you on my show. I, I listened to your voice, read your book, and then uh, sort of said, well, shoot, I need to get this guy on my podcast. And like that, you replied. And here we are, really literally hours later, uh, doing doing this recording. I'm thrilled to have you on my show, Richard. In your own words, how would you like to describe who are you? Oh, boy. Uh, I am... I'm just a regular guy who has overachieved many times in my life. I have succeeded. I've failed. I've succeeded again. I think I finally, at this age, understand who I am. My wife even knows better who I am, but that's who I am. So she's like Facebook, you know. She follows the uh, likes. Sure, yes. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Well, let's, um, let's I want to just talk a little bit more about your background, dig in on, on some of the elements, because um, your book was tremendous. It's, it's all about leading with ethics and humanity. And, and uh, it feels for me that the, you, you obviously had many things that happened in your childhood that were interesting, but something you don't talk so much about is your experience in Vietnam. So you graduated from Annapolis in 1964 and then you flew over 300 combat missions in Vietnam. When you look back on those years, what does that, what did that, what did those, what did that experience bring to you as a human being? Uh, what it did for me personally was let me examine myself in, in a moment of literally mortal danger and how would I react to that? How, how will I respond? Will I freeze? Will I be calm? Will I be something in between? Will I be angry? Will I have a thirst for it? Had no idea. So I guess what I take from all of that, and, and I was very lucky uh, having only 320, 320 missions and uh, came back with a few holes once in a while, but never had to swim back, so to speak. So I was lucky from that standpoint. Uh, I felt honored to be able to lead men, it was only all men then, uh, men into battle and brought everybody home. That was my greatest accomplishment, hmm. to be able to say that and do that and complete the mission. And what does such a set of experiences, I mean, obviously it was over several years in Vietnam, you got, you were decorated many times over, but what, what's it like bringing such an experience back to what I call the pedestrian world of business and sort of the normal mm -hmm. life of citizens? Well, there, uh, and, and there is an advantage, and I've talked about that in a couple of uh, blogs that I've done. 
Here's the advantage. When you're in business, and especially if you're a leader, and if you're the CEO and there's nobody to report to except the board, you run into many crises, we'll call them crises, and they happen frequently. But you, but you end up with a real sense of calm, even in those crises that helps the people that are working for you. Because after all, they're not going to kill you. They might fire you, but you're not going to die. And when you're facing death over and over, that calmness settles into you and say, okay, let's just, let's relax here. Let's talk it through. Let's figure this out. And that's a big help. Well, it's about putting perspective. A lot of, I mean, and you talk about it in the book also, but this notion of resilience, I, I can't help but thinking having hardcore experiences of hardship bring an element of protection or perspective when the hardship isn't that big. And therefore, is some kind of suit of resilience when it's just, you know, hey, listen, we missed the budget. It, it's not, if it doesn't kill me, it will make me stronger kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. Yes. And a lot of that, at least in my case, came from my childhood, from my father, who had been, had worked in steel mills all his life. Everybody did where I came up from. Pittsburgh. From. Pittsburgh. Simple man but his, his rock solid values. And I got to learn from my mistakes, sometimes the hard way. Uh, sometimes I didn't get to do what I wanted to do because I didn't put in the work. And he reminded me simply, you didn't work on this hard enough. You, don't, you didn't earn it and you're not going to do it. And that was the end of the conversation. And I learned that in, in many different ways, some of it from him, and some of them from just the surroundings, my neighbors were the same way. If you lied to your neighbor, that was just as bad as lying to your family. I mean, at the end of the day, somehow you're lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So you get to examine, what do I believe in? Where are my limits? Where do I feel like, is there a place that I can't be convinced to go to because I think it's wrong. You learn that over the years, you hone that vase, if you would, about where, where, where are you willing to go and where aren't you willing to go? Where are your limits? And that's a very big help. So obviously at Annapolis, uh, the glorious, wonderful United States Naval Academy, you get this training to become an officer. And uh, you explained to me just before we recorded how they did some hardship training to, to, let's say, toughen you up or prepare you for hardship, for true hardship. And yet, it, it's very difficult to know how you're going to handle that pressure when it happens. Do you think that there's, what, what is your idea of building resilience today? I mean, out short of you know, sending people to war, how can <laughs> normal people build resilience and, and, and understand that type of perspective without having to go and fly 320 missions? Well, I think it very, very quickly and easily and perhaps simply, you have to set standards for yourself. How, do I, how am I going to improve? How am I going to get through the day? Eating properly sounds simple. Uh, exercise. I don't feel like exercising this morning. Yes, but you told yourself you would. So go and do it, even if you don't feel like it. Those little repetitive things build a resilience in you to say, you know, I can do this. I will do this. In spite of what my ego or my whole body is telling me that I want to do. So it's a level of accountability, self-accountability. Yes. Yes. You are leading yourself at the end of the day. And if you don't do that, everybody will notice, including you. 
Do you subscribe to the idea of one must make one's bed in the morning? I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. And you know why? And this was told this an Admiral, Admiral McRaven gave this speech. He was a Navy SEAL. What's the best benefit of making your bed in the morning? You've already accomplished something. And when you come home tired, you're coming home to a made bed. How delightful. It is a little bit of something you were talking about before with me, which is um, you're, you're behaving without someone watching you. This is something that you are doing for you, by you, and you're, and, and you're holding yourself accountable for an action that is, let's say, a choice but it's a choice that you made. And that kind of feeling of accomplishment gives you a good start to the day. Yes, indeed it does. Because there are many challenges, small and large, that everyone goes through during a day. And if you are just coasting through the day and letting things happen as they do, instead of you directing effort towards what's happening, you can begin to start to feel like a victim or you're out of control. Gee, these things are happening in the day and I didn't intend them to happen. Well, you can start differently and make it be your reality, not the world's reality. So when you came back uh, from Vietnam in, in 67, obviously, or I don't know what's actually 67, that's when you went, but you came back, obviously the United States was in a huge amount of turmoil. Yes. And and having spoken to many veterans who've come back from combat duty, there's a sense of triviality in life. And I'm having to imagine you had to face a bit of that as well. The, you know, the difference between the adrenaline, uh, that uh, camaraderie, the, the sense of risk that you were facing and coming back and says, oh, did you clean the dishes um, or... <laughs> Um, you know, do we, are we going to make the number to this, this week that the sales guy is drilling into you or whatever? How do you, how did you deal with that? And that, and how do you help others bring that sense of purpose, even when there's not that gun or bullet staring over your head? That's a, not surprised, but that's a difficult and, uh, Deep question, and I'll try to answer quickly. When I got back, and, and the triviality of the whole thing turned out to be monstrous for me because on my 320th mission in 1972, I hit a bridge, bombed a bridge in North Vietnam. It's the same bridge that I bombed on my very first mission in 1967. And I came off the target, got out to sea, and I was thinking, what have I accomplished? What have we accomplished? So there's a sense of futility there that was quite powerful. Now, to your question, when I got back, what you have to train yourself to do, and you, this won't happen overnight. People were complaining about veterans. They were spitting at us. They were doing, I came back to having garbage strewn on my lawn. So, and so you absorb that and you have to understand it to some, yes, anger, but that subsides after a while. You have to be willing to commit to achieve whatever you're doing as raising children that I had two of at the time. Their desires are important to them. And here's where a leader needs to be able to adjust. What they need is important to them and therefore is important to me. Is that the same as bombing a target? No, but it's as, it's an, as important to them or more so than that was to me back then. Hmm. It takes time, but you can adjust. So finding some way of being service, of service to people in an important way, like being a father, being present at the time that the child says, I need you to help me do this little truck, this Lego piece, nothing and huge. That's, key. that's a key, being of service. And as I've gotten older, I really committed my life to being of service to somebody or some group for something. And that's what fulfills me today. Uh, you've also been a politician. I know you've been a, 
a mayor and a councilman and a failed House of Representative, uh, as I understood it. Yes, uh, and I and I praise the Lord every day for having lost that race. <laughs> well, a, a, out of out of failure comes massive, lovely lessons, right? Indeed. One of the other things that is, strikes me as so important as a discussion, and it's and it's kind of fun with your last name, Ernest, is yeah. knowledge of self. And we're talking a little bit about how facing a massive risk in battle. You don't know until you're there. And it's important to, to face that with a knowledge of self somehow that gets you through the hardship, being a POW and, and, and being tortured. And, and how does one countenance that type of suffering? But in general, again, most people haven't had the chance, I say chance, the, the experience of having to go to war like that and get to confront themselves and their demons at that point. And yet today, I feel like one of the biggest challenges we have, and perhaps where the crisis of leadership is happening, is because of people not having a good sense of self. And it, it almost, my, my constant theme in these types of interviews that I do is people who have faced near-death experiences or monstrously important experiences, and monstrously being you know, life-threatening and such, they, they come to realize a little bit more about themselves and the importance of knowing themselves and, and doing that work, accepting the fact that they have fear, failure, nerves, imperfections. But it seems like a lot of people today struggle to, or, or don't wish to know themselves deeply. What is your thought? I hesitate to ascribe that, uh, that definition to people until I know them better when you read what hap what's happening in the news and when you hear what politicians are saying and when you hear see what's going on in the world, one can make the assumption that we're all going a little bit crazy. I don't choose to believe that. I don't believe that. I think people in their hearts are very good and want to be good. Circumstances in life might change that perception, but they start out that way. And I do have hope for humankind. Uh, we, we better get our act together because we are making some mistakes. But I do have an innate faith that people want to do the right thing, whatever that means to them. Hmm. Well, that really speaks to ethics. And I stand corrected for, for such a huge generalization. And so doing the right thing is all about ethics, which is really the nature of what your book is. And, and as I was looking at your profile and, and your experience, um, I was looking at how many different CEO jobs you had. They're usually two to three years, fairly short stints to come in, kick some butt, if you will, or at least ship, you know, get the ship uh, going in the right direction again. Yes. It, it, Typically, in those situations, those are if you're coming in and you're, you know, getting the ship back on on the rails. There's an element of urgency. There's an element of broken. You got to fix it. There's a, therefore there's some kind of let's call it mini traumas in the in the house. There's people who are unaware if their job is going to continue on. They may have had practices that weren't quite as savory as you'd like. How do you, how do you come by, come in, and so quickly get people on board? Uh, bring the ethics and humanity into these situations because you also have to get the stuff done. Yes, you do. You have to, first of all, believe in what you're going to do. Show it honestly. Be yourself. Be square with everybody and say, here's what's going to happen. I'll give you an example. One, one of the companies that I ran um, I had to fire everybody in the company, including myself. We were going to dissolve the board, fire everybody. The next day, we were going to change the name of the company, rehire everybody, including myself, and move. That was it. Was a way of getting rid of debt that just it was going to be that close the door. So I had to I had to assume that people would believe me that I was going to hire them back the next day because I had. To, 
and stood in front of him and said, you're all going to be fired as of five o'clock this afternoon. You can't do that unless people believe that you are going to do what you say you're going to do. And that's an internal integrity that you have to have if you're going to be honest with people. If you're not going to be honest with them, eventually they will figure it out. And once they do, trust is over. You don't have it anymore. And that's, that's a big disability in any kind of company, small or large. Well, it, it speaks to the need to speak your truth, or at least to be in a master of the words that you're using as well, because yeah. words can be taken out of context. You might slip in some kind of emotion within the words. And, and so it takes a, a certain control of what you're trying to communicate and knowledge of what you can do and, and wish to do, of course, to be in alignment with say what you do and do what you say. It also means you have to have the courage to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, or I meant to say this a different way and mean it. Uh, if you're too scripted, if you're too matter of fact, it's not really you, is it? Mm. It's the teleprompter or it's the piece of paper that's in front of you. How do I know that you mean what you're saying? And that's, you have to be yourself, truly yourself. And that means with emotion, however you feel, authenticity is magical in that environment. Mm. Well, having guts is the word you used, having courage otherwise. Yeah. I, I, and it's uh, courage is on the front page of my book about my grandfather. Um, is this, the story of my grandfather is about love, courage, and honor. Of course, he being also a United States Naval Academy graduate. And I, it, it, it is a feeling that uh, courage to, and resilience seem to be, some, I feel, something of the same bird, some of the birds of the same flock, if you will. In order to get through stuff, you need to have courage and the, the courage to, to deal with the issues, to deal with the hard facts. And, and there's an element of resilience, I feel, within it. What do you think is the relationship between resilience and courage? It, it is absolutely intertwined with courage, and especially when you're dealing with yourself. Do you have the courage or the guts to admit that uh, I have habits that are not good for me? I'm smoking. I shouldn't be smoking. I smoked heavily in Vietnam. I didn't think I was going to live to be 30 anyway. Right. So I'm not going to die of cancer until I made it through. And I decided uh, this is not a good idea. So I just stopped. I mean, I stopped one morning, never picked up another cigarette again, never missed it. Now, what is that? Self-delusion? Uh, I don't know whether that's, I don't think I would call that courage. That's just strength of spirit that I want to do something people say that's difficult I'm not going to call it difficult I'm just going to help call it something I want to do that's where the resilience comes in um, that that's not something that you, it, everybody has it they just don't use it they don't practice it yeah that doesn't become part of who they are who they believe themselves to be Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Yes, it's like the idea of I'm going to make my bed. I do it. I'm going to say I do it. I do it. And I show it to myself that I can. There's also an element, as I've heard people have talked about, if you vocalize your desire, say, I want to lose five pounds of weight or something to a group of people, it, it apparently that's quite a good incentive to actually lose the five pounds once you've vocalized it instead of just being some sort of abstract thought. Oh, well, I should give up smoking. Yeah, sure. 
Um, <laughs> one of the things that is is tricky for me is ethics is by definition a personal concept. What is right and wrong? Everyone has this feeling of what is right and wrong. At least that's the way I view it. And therefore, when you come into a business that already exists, they have some kind of culture, they have some kind of perhaps unspoken ethical framework, but galvanizing people around ethics as the leader, it's not something you can impose, or at least it would seem strange if you impose your ethical framework on everyone else when they might not believe it. How do you fit that round hole square peg? Demonstration and habit. My wife reminds me all the time when I write often about, you have to do the right thing. She says, oh, wait a minute. How do you know what everybody's right thing is? Mm. And so, and I, I've taken that in. So what you have to do is you have to, by your own behavior, do what you think, what you believe to be right. And if it's leading to good outcomes, other people are encouraged to come along and learn that habit. It may take time. You have to have patience and talk to people about that one-on-one for, and, be, and let them have a different view of what that right thing is. It might just be a slightly different way of addressing the problem. And it may be a better way, actually. So listening becomes a wonderful uh, a wonderful habit, a wonderful trait for leaders. I mean, truly listening, not with the intent to respond, but to listen to what they say. Well, amen to that. It's one of your big chapters in the book, and I yeah. thoroughly subscribe to it. Of course, listening is sort of a, a precondition to having empathy, or at least it's a, uh, it's a tandem piece, knowing how to listen, even if you don't agree or you may have uh, other biases towards what's coming to you. In your book, you, you refer to uh, ethics.organization.org um, and the uh, definition that they have for ethics. And, and I quote, it says that it requires that we question, discover, and defend our values and our principles. It's about finding out who you are and staying true to that in the face of challenges and uncertainty. So I come back to this notion of the need to know yourself and to have values and ethics that are somehow really, truly explicit for you individually. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't sort of just dream up. I feel like it's something you really need to work on to establish just by yourself within yourself. It is a lifelong work of art. What you think is the right thing or what you believe in at 18 years of age is a lot different than what you know at 80 years of age. And you have to be willing to adjust to that based on life's experiences, your own and others. Hopefully you learn, hopefully you become more uh, multidimensional in how you think of things through experience and your own growth and wisdom. And that right thing to do changes. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be comfortable with that. That's what's called learning. What a wonderful concept. You learn about yourself. And you can throw away those childish things, as they say, and learn new things. That's what makes life interesting. So funnily enough, I mean, let's say that learning or curiosity is definition of, of being a child. And so it, it's about staying, keeping the child within us. In our day, uh, you're a little older than I am, but um, we basically, information was power. Information was hard to find. And you, the ones who swatted up and went to the library and did all the reading, they were the ones that got ahead. Today, information is just a fingertip away. And, and there's also a lot of other things on the internet that uh, I believe are polluting our ability to spend time with oneself mm-hmm. and have that honest inner dialogue to, to come up with what are truly our ethical, our ethics and our, or our values. Now, I was having a conversation at lunch today 
And I said, and I said, which ones describe you? Integrity, family, compassion, uh, authenticity. And and she was like, yeah, 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 that's me. So I could go on. And and all of these things, it's hard not to say no to. I mean, who who doesn't want to think that they have integrity or compassion or family is for, for, you know important and whatever. And and yet you can't have everything. I mean, if you are everything, then you are nothing. So to have that ability to cut down and, and be more strategic and, and more incisive about who you are and what you feel like uh, is the strongest, most important thing for you. The the social media is has contaminated us. And so I feel like that's contributing to this volatility. The 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 tectonic plates are constantly moving nowadays. I agree with you. You know, we 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 can all call call Mr. Google and get our answer almost instantly to almost anything. It's quite extraordinary, actually. However, you may consider yourself empathetic and all the words you use. What about uh, unfair, judgmental, uh, impatient, selfish. What about those kinds of words? I'm not Do any of that. How dare you think <laughs> that, Richard? I am. I'm shocked. <laughs> those words are not ones that one ascribes to themselves. Typically, somebody else may call them that. All right. Are you listening? Take that in. Am I? Am I really impatient? The example they used, are they right about that? So self-examination, self-discovery is really important in those. If if you're going to become the person that you say you want to be. You you write at one point, um, or you speak, because I only listened to it, but it was, uh, <laughs> it, it seems to me that you make a, a strong parallel between conscious leadership and ethical leadership. Tie those two together for us so it's clear. Conscious leadership is really knowing what you need to do as a leader. And there's a goal that you have to achieve through other people and doing and, and not doing it haphazardly, doing it consciously. Now, where does ethics come into that? You have to visualize the result. And is the result going to make people's lives better? Is it going to make them happier, safer? Are they, is this going to improve people's view of themselves and the world? And will the world look at this as, that appears to be the right thing to do. And so that's how they, they always have to have it in the back of your mind. What will somebody say at the end of this? to us about what we're just what we're about to do. Hmm. You, you say uh, doing the right thing is powerful. And it, when I uh, talk to companies frequently, or individuals for that matter, I, I like them to ponder the following question. How would the world be worse off if you didn't exist? Mm -hmm. and, and, and many companies, I would say, I dare would say, uh, I would have no answer to that, as in just a competitor would come in, take my lunch, and uh, be happily on their way. Or, or you, as an individual, how are you? What are you? How are you making a contribution to the bigger, bigger world? Which leads me to the other area I wanted to explore with you, which was is very interesting to me, and I suspect there's an element of almost curiosity, borderline. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 a funny thought, but. Leadership as a politician versus leadership as a business person versus leadership in the military. And sure, there are crossovers, but I, I have to believe, for example, the military still relies on hierarchy. The politics still relies on doing what you're told to do by the population that votes you in. And in business, you still have to cater to the shareholders but it's a little bit different. I mean, there is hierarchy as well. I, I, what, are, what, what are some of the major differences for you in terms of leadership qualities? And if I am one or t'other, which one should I would lead me to be more like a leader politician, a leader in the military, or a leader in the 
civilian or business world? Oh my, <laughs> you are good at answering, asking difficult questions. <sighs> having been having been a leader in all three, I would say that time and timing matter in all of those. In the military, yes, it's much more hierarchical than the other two. You give an order, that's what's going to happen, period. In politics, uh, I would argue with your summation that po politicians are out there to do the people's will, because I don't see that happening at the moment. They do it so they can stay in power. Mm. And that's, I think it's much more self actualized and self self empowerment in in politics at the moment i don't think it's always been that way but it is in business it's a it's a bit more sophisticated and nuanced because the decisions you're making may take time to manifest themselves it may take a couple of years you may not get an instant answer the hierarchical piece is much uh, it's much grayer, if you will, and much more fluffy. You, there's room to move and maneuver in there. So it's more sophisticated and in many ways more difficult because there are many, many different kinds of outcomes that come from it. So that's how I would differentiate them. But what I think overlies all three is ethics and humanity, because at the end of the day, it's all about people. It's just about people. And you're not the only one. It's about them primarily. And if you can focus yourself on the other people that you're leading or somebody else is leading, you're going to understand better how it's affecting them and what you as an individual can do to help them. So uh, I want to just, uh, I'm going to jump in with a quick citation from a senator. Uh, who, who said on the Senate floor the following, I'm thoroughly disgusted by the way the government in Washington works. There's almost total partisanship, both on the right and the left. Neither side talks to the other, and the divide just seems to be getting worse. Self-interest comes before the national interest. Sounded a little bit similar to what you were just talking about. Of course, that speech was made in 1924 by my great-grandfather, um, so suggesting that this idea of self-interest has existed before. And, and, and the thought that comes to my mind here, Richard, is this notion of ego, the place of ego in leadership. It's important to have ego, to have the ambition. And, and at times it's really useful. And at other times it is entirely detrimental in, in the, political sphere it feels like well since you don't get paid diddly to do it it you might you have to get something else out of it like power and, and the ego trip of me it's me my name on the placard that's being dadded around then there's in business it's hard not to have ego when you're also getting paid galoshes of money and and the let's say the self-belief, maybe arrogance that comes with that. In the military, it happened as well, as we know, uh, the infighting in the Second World War is legion mm -hmm. between all these heads of different parts of the military. But talk us through the ego and, and what role it should have and or shouldn't have in leadership. You hit on, in fact, I was going to say it before you finish, is ego is the the watchword that you used that is so important here. And the constant conflict between the ego and the heart and the, your, your own conscience is a battle that we all live with every day. You can't eliminate the ego, it's there. But what you have to understand is where is it taking over? Where is it directing my activity and my thoughts and my behavior? And is that, is that what I want? Is that what I really want? So understanding where the ego fits and where the heart fits is terribly, terribly important. So it's like and being self-aware. <laughs> you just need to be aware of it and its yeah. role and then assess, is this, is this what I want really? And there, for that, you need to know really what you want. And who you are. 
Yes. That self-examination, you don't tend to do when you're 18. But when you get older, as you, or let's say you get more mature, it becomes very important to know who you are. I love it. All right. So the last question is sort of a, a mashup. Um, sticking <laughs> with business and your leader of business, uh, you personally have been a politician. And I wonder what advice you would counsel or give to leaders of business with regard to political opinions. You're running a business. There's a political situation. We can call it Israel. We can call it Ukraine. We can call it Black Lives Matter, any number of them. Is it a good idea? Is it necessary to voice your opinion because that's what you think is right? Or how do you assess politics in business? I think that I think you have to be careful as a business leader. I think you have to stay in your lane. You were hired to grow and sustain a comfort, a, a business, profitable business that delivers a service or product to some group of people. Does that mean you have to eliminate your own personal opinions? No, you just have to be very careful where you introduce them. Now you, you're really not in business 24 seven, but your opinion, your political opinions can and do carry over to and influence your business. So I think you have to be very careful about what you say, much more careful than the people in Washington are. And you just <laughs> well, have to be careful. So if I could just push back a bit, it, there are some people that say staying silent is is incriminating. So if you don't have an opinion, well, how can I really trust you, uh, Mr. Leader? Because you haven't expressed your opinion on this super important topic that everybody else is talking about or and come up with transparency and authenticity when you have to be also careful. It, it feels like a, a difficult tightrope to, to show who you are, fly your true colors, and yet be sensible and careful. I think you can compartmentalize yourself as an, as an individual, separate and apart from you as the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. If I'm, and if I were to get that question, what I would say is, uh, do I have an opinion? Yes, I do. I choose to keep that opinion to myself. In my own private matters, I will do what I feel like doing, but in this case, I'm not going to answer it. Now, if even pressed further, I would, I'd work around the edges of that. Would that be a little a politic thing to do? Probably, but you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful where you want to plant your stake in the ground because you've already eliminated all the other stakes if you do that. So mm. it, it, you've got to be somewhat clever, honest, but you've got to be clever. What I would do is not answer the question. Yeah. And it, it does speak to this idea of transparency, which on the face of it seems like a great way to gain trust. However, being 100% transparent, naked, if you will, I don't think is a good place either, even for a relationship with your spouse. Radical transparency, some people like to float around. I feel like it's it's not the right thing. There's a time and a place to say things. You can't, if you're the CEO, say everything because some things are highly confidential, even legally, not even ethically, but legally confidential. And mm -hmm. and so we 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 all need also, assuming we have a, a, a we're on the journey of understanding ourselves, know where that line is, beyond which we're not willing to or shouldn't be exposing, you know, what is our true feelings. And, I, and I, I think it also brings a little bit of reality to this idea of authenticity. You can be authentic, but not be fully transparent. Correct. But, it, but it's a tightrope. It is a tightrope. And it's something that you have to think about and be aware of and be facile in how you respond. Uh, this is part of what I, I mean. I do some mentoring of young CEOs right now. And in their most early 40s, most of them, building small companies, don't know how to build a management team. And I spend time 
with that, with them, because they're not sure. Well, I'm not sure how to behave or how to talk about this. And that's really where I get involved with a lot of them. And it, it hopefully it helps. Uh, hopefully it takes. You remind me, I mean, it's not what you do, but uh, of a film I saw with Robert De Niro called The Intern. And I don't know if you saw that, but it's a delicious film of, of how wisdom can be useful in young boardrooms. Um, Richard, it's been a total pleasure having you on to, to ruminate and talk about these sometimes very tough conversations and, and certainly for sharing some of the difficulties you've had, uh, you know, and what you did. And thank you for your service. Uh, for sure. How can anybody go get your book, Leading with Ethics and Humanity? Do you have the guts uh, and or read your writings, uh, get in contact, you hire you to come in and give <laughs> give us some, some sound advice? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, the book, by the way, is, is uh, published uh, through Amazon and available on amazon.com. Uh, either in written form or in audio form. And many, many people want to do the audio version. And that's just fine. And it's actually me doing the audio. So you'll really get to hear that. Uh, you can also get a hold of me through my website, which is, rich, uh, at, is ernestenterprises.us, uh, .us, not .com. Or not or, .uss. <laughs> and not, <laughs> oh, yeah, not too bad about that. I wish I could yeah. have done that. Yeah. Uh, not not .uss. Or you can get to get me through LinkedIn and uh, at, at through my name, Richard Ernest, at, at LinkedIn slash in slash mentor is how it gets. So there are a number of ways to find me. And all that information is in the book as well. So that's where you can find me. Well, I'll put all of those references in the show notes to make it clickable and easy. And uh, and a quick shout out to your wife, who you mentioned several times. She sounds like she's been a, a true leader in your family, too. She has indeed. She Thank has. You. We all need a teacher. We do. And sometimes it's your children, too. That's for sure. You, if you're open, you can be taught by everything. Um, yeah. Richard, thank you so much for coming on. You're quite welcome. And I enjoyed our conversation and hopefully we can continue to have a dialogue at some point. Love it. So a really heartfelt thanks for listening to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. As ever, ratings and reviews are the real currency of podcasts. And if you're really inspired... I'm accepting donations on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You'll find the show notes with over 2,100 blog posts on Minterdial.com on topics ranging from leadership to branding, tech, and marketing tips. Check out my documentary film and books, including the last one, the second edition of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence that came out in April 2023. And to finish... Here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself There's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man Building an urge I'm a convinced man To live and die submerged A convinced man In the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man Challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man. Competition's innate. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. Despise revenges and struggle with deceit. 
for the challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge i know soon we all die i like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why i'm a convinced man practicing my lines i'm a convinced man here in these confines a convinced man in the arms of a woman i'm a convinced man admit to the test i'm a convinced man i'm ready Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.